Okay, I'd like to invite you to come back to your seat. Always hate breaking up the conversation right there, but we're on a kind of a schedule, so we have to keep going. Um, but please pick that up afterwards. Like, remember where you were at. Go back to, back to chatting as soon as we're done. So we're continuing our, on in our series, walking through the book of Philippians. And... Um, we're in chapter one still, um, moving right along. And so we're going to start reading today. Um, chapter one, let's do verse 19. So there's, there are Bibles um, scattered about on, under every other seat. Um, if you uh, don't have a Bible at home, please take one of those and uh, take it home with you. That's our gift from us to you. We feel like everyone should have a Bible at home. And so take that if you need one. Um, those, the verses will be on the screens to my left and to my right if you want to follow along that way. Philippians 1, verse 19. Yes, well, I'll start. yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which, I, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, um, as we pray every week, that I pray as we walk through this and we teach this, that your spirit would, uh, that makes this word come alive, would, uh, that it would come alive in our hearts and our minds, that it would change us today, that we would put ourselves under your word and its authority in our life. I pray you would give me uh, the words to say and that if those words aren't from the Spirit, I pray that they would fall on deaf ears this morning. And we honor you and we want to worship you this time. It's for our joy and your glory. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, this morning I want to talk about the, the idea or the topic of ambition. Okay, ambition. Question... Is, is having ambition or being an ambitious person a good thing? I want you to think about that. Is that a good thing, to be ambitious? Another question, what is the difference between ambition and greed? I think most of us say, yes, there's, there's a difference, but think about what makes, what makes the difference between those two things, between ambition and envy. You think of historical figures, if you guys know World War II at all, you have Hitler and Churchill. Hitler is um, rightfully so often seen as like a terrible monster um, and kind of the, the, the villain in the World War II story. And you have Churchill who's often seen and portrayed as one of the, one of the heroes of, of uh, World War II who was able to stop Hitler. Um, but if you just stand back and look at these two men, both were ambitious. 
I mean, in their own ways, they were very ambitious men. But what was the difference? Why, why one good portrayed and one evilly portrayed? Why is that? There's a movie that came out this year, a fairly popular movie called Black Panther. Um, and um, for, I'm guessing there are maybe three of you guys in this room who hadn't seen it. It was one of the most popular box office movies of all time. In that movie, what made it so good was there were, there were um, it was a t- t- typical Marvel story with a, 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 a good guy and a bad guy or a, a good person and a villain. And, um, and, and, and the, the thing with this story is this, I'm trying not to get into too many deals, but this African country or, or uh, nation called Wakanda, they have this element, this mineral that they have, and they've had it for a long time, and they've kind of hoarded that mineral, and it's made them the most powerful nation technologically in the world, but they've kept it to themselves, and they've been able to live inside this bubble and really flourish inside this bubble. Um, and you have kind of the leader at the present time in the movie, uh, this guy named T'Chada, and he's kind of the hero of the story, and he wants to keep the mineral to themselves because it's, it's benefited them. Um, and some pressures are starting to come up on him, and he's thinking about maybe introducing this, this mineral to the outside world to allow more people to take advantage of this mineral. And you have the villain in this story, who's Nickname in the movie is Killmonger, and this guy is also of Wakandan descent, but he grew up I mean, in the United States, so he's been out of the bubble his whole life. He's been um, a, and, 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 uh, a victim of, of um, injustice and um, all these things. He's seen all these things in the outside world, and once he finds out there's a mineral there, he wants to weaponize it, put it in the hands of rebels, and take out the, the authorities who've been oppressing his people for all these years. Now, what makes, I think, the movie really good, one of the things is that, like, you see why both men are ambitious. And there's some, some morally kind of vague things. Like, I get Killmonger and why he's ambitious to do this. He suffered oppression, and they have the thing that could, could help his people all over the world break, break away from that. But I also see T'Chadi. He's taking kind of the, maybe the, the slow approach and the more diplomatic approach. He wants to help people, but he also wants to keep it for himself. There's some moral ambiguity there. But both of these men are ambitious in their own way, and I think that's one of the main reasons why this is one of the, the, the biggest box office uh, smashes of all time. And so these, you see these stories of ambition of people that we're attracted to. And oftentimes we have to ask, what's underneath that? What's going on behind the scenes there? Even in the, even in the scriptures, you have Jesus. These two passages are both from Jesus. You have Matthew 5, verse 3 and verse 5, that say this. Say, blessed, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I, I think I left these out of the, of the slide, so I'll read that again to make sure. You, Matthew 5, 3 through 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Don't hear, sense a lot of ambition coming from Jesus in those, in those passages there. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is Jesus again. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe uh, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's like one of the most ambitious passages in all of the scripture. Okay, so on one hand, Jesus is like, go, accomplish this huge vision. Be ambitious, go after it. And then in Matthew 5, 3, 5, it seems like, hey, blessed are 
the poor in spirit. They're going to be rewarded. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. So what, what's going on here in the scriptures as we think about ambition? I think it's important for us to dig into this and really ask the question. In, in, in Philippians, what's great about this passage we're looking at, Paul is, is right in the middle of this ambitious um, kind of part of his writing that I think he gives us a really good insight into how to handle ambition. So really two, two kind of points to this as we move forward. One, how to navigate this tension of ambition. Is it ambition or is it greed? How do we navigate that as we live our lives? And two, and how does it change the way we live? Once we really start to think about ambition and how it can come out in different ways, how does it change the way we live? So let's go back to uh, Philippians. Verse 18. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I realize that's from last week. Um, but what we, what we covered last week is that Paul has this primary goal, at least what we've seen so far, that the gospel would go forth. He, that's what he's about. That's what he wants people praying for. That's why the Philippian church gave, so the gospel would go forth. And he even gets to the point in the previous verse, verses, he said, I don't care how it goes forth. I don't care what people's motives are for preaching the gospel. I just want the good news to go and go far and go to the ends of the earth. And, he, and it's doing that, and he's rejoicing. And that's why the tent, the, the, kind of the tent of rejoice um, in this whole letter. Verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. And he's saying here he doesn't have to be, he doesn't have to feel shame, even though he's in prison. Being in a Roman prison, that, you could be ashamed of that any prison. Like, there's some shame that comes along with having to be locked up and lose that measure of freedom. But he says, I'm not ashamed. Like, I'm not ashamed of being in the prison because I'm here because of the gospel, something that I'm not ashamed in. And I'm getting to talk to these, 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 these guards, and the gospel is even going forth in the prison. He is not ashamed of the gospel, and he won't be ashamed if this turns out bad for him. He said, I won't be ashamed. Now we get to verse 20. He says, but that, will finishing verse 20, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And that's like a, that's a huge inspirational statement. I don't care. I'm not ashamed. Whether by life or by death, Jesus is going to, 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 to reign in me. He's going to be my, the, the most important thing. He's going to be honored in my body. He's going to be glorified through me, whether I live or die. Think of um, uh, Braveheart, William Wallace. They may take our lives, but they won't take our freedom. We all remember that line. Um, and then in Gladiator, he says, what we do in earth echoes in eternity, right before that battle scene. So it kind of mirrors that. He's, he's, he's trying to encourage the Philippian church here with his... Um, just a single-minded focus on the gospel and that this stuff is not going to make him feel shamed and he's going to have courage in whatever happens before him. Okay? So we need to feel this. And imagine if you are in the Philippian church and you're receiving this letter. This letter's probably being read out loud to you because the majority of people couldn't read this. So this letter's being read out to you and you're listening and you find out the news he's in prison. And then he starts talking, <clears throat> starts saying these things. 
Like whether by in life or death, Christ honored in my body. You may be inspired, may give you courage. It also may scare you. It's like now Paul's like talking about, yeah, death may happen. This is a reality. So you may be scared. You may think Paul is crazy. Like, Paul, you're nuts. Like how, do, how could you say this? This doesn't make sense. And Paul expects all of these responses. Like when he's writing, he knows, okay, when I say this in verse 20, it's going to cause a reaction for people, one way or the other. And then you come to verse 21. And this is like the t-shirt verse. We all know this verse. We've been in church any length of time. But I think it's important to know the context. He says, uh, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, he's kind of trying to explain it more. He's saying verse 20 in a different way for us to understand. And, but it, for many of them, it probably didn't matter. Like, okay, Paul, that doesn't help me. It's still crazy you're saying these things. So you're saying to, to live, like go on living is a good thing. And then, but you say like to die is gain. Like you don't have something that you would gain if you died right now. Which if you just heard people talking, even in the church in this way, even though that's hopefully correct and we should, we should want that, it's still a little bit crazy. It's like, wow, like you would rather die right now so you could be with Jesus. And Paul goes on, really the next five verses, he's explaining what he means by this. So let's read. Let's go through verse 26, verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. He's again going back and forth, life or death, life or death. Verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Hey, I love you, Philippian church. This would be better. Like, I, I kind of want him more than you guys. Um, verse 24. But to remain in the flesh, to stay here, to continue living, is more necessary on your account, talking to the church. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. It's the reason why there's a desire also for him to continue to live. It's going to be good things for the Philippian church. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And Paul's thinking, if I, if I get out of this and I don't die, then I'm probably going to come to you again. And so he's saying, obviously, that the, the benefit for him to stay is going to benefit the Philippian church. So that's the benefit, like the, their progress and joy in the faith. They would be able to glorify um, in glory in Christ Jesus, the scriptures say. And it's interesting that he connects their progress and joy in the faith to him being there. And based off of commentaries and stuff, there's probably some issues going on in the Philippian church kind of behind the scenes that it's not explicit yet, but we'll see next week as we jump into chapter 2. There may be some, some dissension in the Philippian church um, that Paul's going to address next week. But so there's, that's one of the reasons why he feels like if I could come back there and continue to to teach and lead and pastor you guys and develop leaders and those kinds of things, then that's better for your progress in faith. But I want to go back to our original question. Is ambition a good thing? Is it a good thing? Like, yes, it's a good thing. Obviously, like these, verse 20 and 21, they're some of the most ambitious statements a human being could make. Like to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I mean, this guy is going hard after his purpose. He's going hard after it, and if he dies, he says, I died. That's actually a good thing. Now, 
here's the deal, kind of talking to the room here. Some of us in this room need more ambition. We need to be more ambitious, more purpose. There needs to be something kind of moving you and driving you in your day-to-day life. I think that's the message that when we look at Paul, hopefully you're sensing that a little bit. Don't, don't put Paul up on a pedestal and say, well, that guy was like a rock star. I could never have the ambition. He, no, like he has the same Holy Spirit we have. If you're in Christ, you have this, he has the same Holy Spirit. And in some sense, he's called to the same thing you're called to, and that's to see the gospel go forth. Another passage that I think if you, if you need more ambition and need more purpose, and this is for everyone in the room, not just followers of Jesus, Genesis 1.28 says this. This is God's, he lays out the purpose of all humanity at the beginning of the Bible. He says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So all human beings are given this mandate by God to be good stewards of everything he's given us. So he's created everything, including us, but he tells the, the chief among his creations, humanity, to take care of the rest of the earth. We're good stewards of it. We, we have dominion over it. We have reign and rule over it, but we take care of it. Okay, so whether you're a follower of Jesus or not in this room, this is, in a sense, your, your calling. Now, two chapters later in Genesis 3, sin comes into the world, and it has messed things up, and it's fractured relationships between humans and God. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, kind of get to that at the end. But that purpose may be kind of, kind of echoes in your life instead of the thing that your life should be about. But we all have a purpose. We should have ambition. Now, for some of us, our ambition needs to be redirected. It needs to be checked by the gospel. Needs to be checked by the gospel, okay? Um, and we're going to get into how I think Paul does that, okay? There are really two, two primary ways the gospel kind of checks Paul. One, Paul is humbled by the gospel. The gospel has humbled him. Um, listen to 1 Timothy 1, 15. He says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. So I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. And yet Jesus saved me. God's grace came into my life. I was shown God's mercy. So the one thing is just the gospel has made Paul a humble person as it relates to faith and his relationship with God. He is dependent upon God for everything, especially salvation, but everything. So he's humbled by the gospel. That's the one thing that kind of keeps Paul's ambition in check because we see that he, this is an ambitious guy. The second thing, though, is that he can't wait to be with Jesus. Like, like that's his goal. When he's set it, setting his eyes forward, it's clear from his writings that the goal for Paul, when this life is over, he knows he's going to be in the presence of his Savior and his King, Jesus. And that moves him, and that motivates him, and that keeps his ambition in check. Kind of like what... what you know, the question that we all, I think, have been maybe asked before, what are people going to say at your funeral? Like, what, are they going to talk about things that maybe benefited you? Are they going to talk about things that may have benefited others and God? Okay, Paul was singularly focused on Jesus. His eyes up looking to, to, to God and to Jesus and the Holy Spirit to 
empowered him. He's captivated by Jesus. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It's another place in Paul's writing that kind of gets at this face-to-face idea. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face, like in the future face-to-face. Now I know in part, I know a little bit of, about Jesus, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, really fully known by him. And in that day, um, mirrors, they didn't have the same like kind of glass, kind of perfectly reflected front. Um, they, they were probably bronze or silver. And if you've ever looked into like a, a, a sheet of like a cooking sheet or something like that in the kitchen, like you can see your reflection, but it's really fuzzy. So you can barely make out who's there. And this is what Paul's saying. That's why he uses the illustration. He's saying, yeah, right now we can see a little bit of Jesus. We can, we can know him some, to some degree in the scriptures. I, I experience him in some ways, but I do not know him fully. Okay, I have not experienced Jesus fully. And oh, I can't wait to the day when I get to see my Lord and Savior face to face. And Paul is thinking about that and he's longing for that. Do we long for that? How much of our mental energy is spent on thinking about seeing Jesus face to face and what that moment could potentially be like? John, the apostle John who was with Jesus says this in one of his letters, 1 John 3, 2, gets at the same idea, beloved, talking to the church. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know that when, we, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John is, is thinking about that day in the future when he's going to get to see Jesus face to face. And you think about why does, why does Paul want to see Jesus face to face so much? Because he saved him. And he was the worst of sinners in Paul's mind. That Jesus came into the world and and he lived this perfect life that no human being could possibly live to be in good standing before God. Jesus did it for for, for sinners. And that Jesus died on the cross, died a horrible death that we all as human beings deserve to die. Took sin upon himself, gave those who would believe the righteousness of God. And then three days later rose from the dead Basically, the stamp of approval saying, it is finished. That cross thing, it's done. That's it. That's the nail. It's over. He conquered sin and Satan and death when he rose from the dead. Now, for Paul, everything he's able to do and plant churches and preach the gospel and lead churches, it's all because of Jesus is alive, the Spirit uh, resides in him, and he's able to, to have fruitful ministry because of that. And Jesus ascended back to the Father after he rose from the dead. And one day, Jesus will return and set up a kingdom here on earth. The new heavens and the new earth, where Jesus is king on his throne. And Paul knows he will be there that day and will see Jesus as he is. That's the gospel narrative. That's the gospel story. And this is what Paul believes in. He's banking his life on this. So that's why, of course, he wants to see this person who's responsible for saving him face to face. I'm sure he's jealous of, of Peter and John and them getting to have like breakfast on the beach with Jesus. Remember, Paul didn't get that. Paul came a little bit later when he was saved. He didn't get to see Jesus face to face in the way he's going to see him one day in the future. Now, how many of us are, are there? Let's just be honest with ourselves. Like, even this week as I was w- walking through this passage, like, Man, to live, live as Christ and to die as gain. How many, 
times or moments throughout a day or a week could I say that? Could I be so singularly focused on Jesus and the things of God where I could say, yeah, you could take me right now. That's better. You're talking about I have a wife, I have a son, I love this church, I like being a pastor. Like, but that stuff was by far secondary to Jesus, to being with Jesus face to face. And here's the danger in our culture, okay? Suburbia, America, the privileges that we have, spiritually and physically, okay? That I think being a Christian in this country, sometimes um, maybe it doesn't line up with how the Bible says a, what a Christian should be, okay? I think sometimes Christianity is one, thing, one of those things that you kind of add to your resume to make your resume, overall resume look better. So you're going to add Jesus here because it'll improve the overall portfolio here. And one pastor friend of mine once gave this illustration. It was really helpful for me. But um, oftentimes in suburbia, when, when maybe Christianity doesn't line up with what the Bible says, Christianity is like a, a file cabinet. And um, imagine your life like a file cabinet. And you take the Jesus file folder that you, you receive when you believe, and you kind of stick it in there with the, the marriage file, the parenting file, the financial file, the friendship file, the success file, all these files, the entertainment file. You put Jesus in that file, and you, and you can access Jesus when you need him. When you really need Jesus on Sunday morning, you can go get him. When you're really in a, in a, in a, in a tight spot, you can go get Jesus. The, 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 he's, he's like, prayer, I can go grab Jesus. Now, imagine the flip of that. Imagine when you become a follower of Jesus. You pull all those files, previous files, out of the file cabinet and put them on the ground. And you take that file cabinet to the, to the city dump. And you buy a brand new file cabinet. That's Jesus. That's Christianity. And then you take all those files and put them back in the primary file cabinet, which is Jesus, which is Christianity. Now, all of those files are shaped and formed and are dictated by the actual file cabinet. file cabinet holds those things together. You can take those other things out of the file cabinet to, to, to access them, but they're all done in the file cabinet of Jesus. And that mental picture has always helped me in just saying that, that Jesus can't be an add-on. You just can't, like, you can't say what Paul said in uh, chapter 1, verse 21, if Jesus is an add-on. How we handle our marriage, how we handle money, how we handle parenting, how we handle entertainment how we love the marginalized in our city, how we share our faith. All of these things, we can say, Jesus, you're, you're Lord of these things. These things are yours, and I'm going to live through that. Or we can say, yeah, you can have these three, but I'm going to keep these two. Like, you don't really have a say in, in this thing. You're not really Lord of this area. An uh, old Dutch theologian called Abraham Kuyper said this, fairly common quote, but I think it fits well here. It says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So it's kind of talking about the cosmic earth here that Jesus says, mine. He can say it to anything in the world. He can say mine too. He's, it's his, his right to do so. He's in authority. But if that's true, then how much more does he have the right to call um, the shots and have the authority over things in our individual lives. Of course he does. If he, cosmically, if he can do that, he sure can do it individually for those of us who have professed Christ and have faith in him. 
What defines us? What gives you joy? What are you banking on? What can you say in your life? This, if, if I have this and once I have this, this makes life good. Or what do you dream about to make life better? If I could just have this, or if I could just get that to go away, oh, I would, my life would be complete. What is that thing for you? And that's the thing that's going to get in the way of you saying Philippians 1, 21. That is your God, or that is your idol to say. I think this is hard because this is the exact opposite message. I mean, verse 20, I mean, I, I don't see, I said it, a t-shirt verse, but Honestly, like, you wouldn't put maybe 121 on a t-shirt. Maybe it's 413 you put on the t-shirt. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a little bit better. But you say for me to live as Christ and die as gain, you wear that in your t-shirt, there's some accountability there, okay? So that, that verse kind of flies in the face of our culture, especially our consumer, consumeristic culture. Our culture says, buy more stuff to make you happy. Watch more TV consume more movies to take your mind off of things. Go to, spend a little bit more time on social media. Like, look for that like so you can find worth and value from other people and what they think of you. But what Paul is saying here, that our posture, our posture needs to be one of everything's open-handed. And Jesus like, you have it all. All of these areas that we all live in and deal with that I've mentioned, like, we have to say, these are yours. I'm a follower of Jesus now, and all these things pale in comparison to you. Paul says, he is my treasure. He is my source of freedom and joy. He is better than anything that the world could possibly give me that I could consume. Back to ambition. I think what we're ambitious for really shows where our treasure is actually at. So if you do have ambition, where is it, where is it aimed at? Where are you aiming your ambition? What, what, what causes you to get up in the morning? It's probably where your ambition is. And I think this is where Paul is able to not let his ambition spill over into greed. Because Paul was about, you know, if they had, I don't know what podcasts were back then, but Paul was about having his, his books sold or how many podcast downloads he had or how many hits on his, on his uh, Philippian church website. I don't know. Like, if that was what he was about... He would not be seeking the glory of God. It would be greed. It would be selfish ambition. So how does Paul, how is Paul able to keep his ambition in check? We've talked about these things. These things that Paul is about, they're eternal. They'll last long after Paul is gone. Kind of back to the funeral idea. Like what are people going to say at your funeral? What, if, what are you going to do in this life that is going to outlast you as a person? Because we're, we're all headed there. But Paul's worship of Jesus, to, he, Paul's arguably the most um, ambitious Christian person who's ever lived. Like there's nobody that I can think of that I would put above Paul in, in, in being ambitious. Below Jesus, obviously, but non-Jesus folk. Like Paul is at the top. But it's all done with pure motives. All for the glory of God. So how do we do this? Practically, what does this look like? Um, two things, and we'll close. Two things. I want to give you, I think, as practical as we can. Um, number one is just keep your eyes on Jesus. Like, do you strive to know him? Do you pursue him? Do you make time for him? Do you make mental space for him? 
Does your mind drift towards him? Do you worship him? And worshiping is really just honoring him in anything you do. So that doesn't just take place here. It's whatever you go out, leave here and do, you can worship him by honoring him in how you live. Now, how is this done? Um, one, you have to practice these things as an individual. Home spiritual discipline, spiritual practices. Like you have to carve out some time to spend with Jesus on a consistent basis. And it's not legalistic, but it, it, I mean, if Jesus is the most important thing in the world, then obviously you make time for him. I for sure try to make time for my wife and my kids. I make time for what's important. That doesn't make it legalistic. So you make time for what's important. If Jesus is important to you, make time for him. Think about him. It doesn't really matter how, what that looks like. Just think, create some time to let your mind think about him. And the second thing of how, how of this is the community. That's why we stress community and family so much because you're going to have days and weeks and months where you, you're so far from being able to say what Paul said in verse 21. You're not even close to that. Like the world has you in its claws. Like you are addicted to consumption or you're addicted to something that day or that week or that month or maybe over those years. But you need somebody in community to come alongside and to remind you who's, who's going to actually pay off as a treasure. Who's actually going to come through when you worship them? Who can actually save you and give you abundant life and give you living water where you'll never thirst again? And we need people to remind us on that because we're so forgetful. We're so forgetful on these things. So number one, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Number two, um, I'll say this, and maybe this is for some of you who maybe lack ambition in some areas. Go hard after the things of God. And again, number one, remember, number one's first. There's a reason why it's first. But if, you're, if, you're, if your eyes are set on Jesus, then you have the freedom just to go hard after the things of the kingdom with your time with your skills, with your money, with your family. I mean, those things, like, like, it, you have this freedom to just go get after it. And he gives us clear marching orders in the scriptures. Blake talked about um, being able to preach the gospel to those who don't know him last week. And he, gave, he laid down a charge for us. Hopefully this week we've been, we've been active in doing that. There's anything in the scriptures that God's calling us to do, it's, call, it's calling us to do that so we can extend the kingdom. So let's get after it. And we don't, have to, we don't have to worry about that being selfish or that being um, a prideful or greedy if number one's in place. If our mind's set on Jesus and the gospel and that's humbling us, then it's really hard for us to be arrogant and allow us to be consumed by selfish ambition. If Paul, he's talking about, I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned, I've been, I've been hurt, my friends have deserted me, I've been in prison. Like all of these things there in 2 Corinthians, I don't have time to read it, but that passage where he's just unfolding his resume of basically beatdowns. This guy is ambitious and he keeps going and going and going. So number one, are you ambitious? Number two, what are your ambitions aimed at? Will those things lead to God receiving glory and not you? And if they aren't, let's, let's deal with that. We're going to have communion in a few minutes. When you have some time and some space to think and reflect, ask, question your ambitions. Put your ambitions on trial and ask them, what am I aiming at here? Is it the kingdom or is it me? Or maybe you need to be woken up to the things of the kingdom. If you're in Christ, maybe you need to have more ambition and get after it more with the years that um, you have left on this earth. Let's pray.